Tonight, we are beginning a weekend seminar about refuge. And if you look at uh, any of the Buddhist texts, you find that uh, refuge is always described as the most fundamental thing of the Buddhist path. In fact, it's the entryway to uh, Buddhism and it uh, defines the dividing line between uh, when we are you know, just shopping around, looking at Buddhism, and when we actually uh, commit ourselves to the Buddhist path. And every Buddhist practice that uh, we do begins with reaffirming refuge. Therefore, it must mean something. It uh, obviously is not just reciting, you know, I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and leaving it at that. It has to be something which is so fundamental in us that it makes a major, major change in our lives. And because of that, it's utterly essential to really understand what it's talking about and what it actually means on a daily, day-to-day -day basis. So over this weekend, what uh, I'd like to do is to discuss with you and guide guide you through uh, a series of contemplations, basically, to uh, look within ourselves and try to understand what we are actually talking about with refuge and what it could actually mean for our own personal lives. So that means that uh, we will cover quite a few points and with each of these points we will pause for uh, a few minutes to actually think about it, contemplate it. This is what we need to do with uh, anything in Buddhism actually is uh, with each point to take time out to think about it and see, does this make any sense to me? Does this have any meaning? If it doesn't make any sense, then why go further? You know, the way in which we uh, work on ourselves has to be step by step. And if a beginning step is uh, very uncertain, you know, not stable, all the rest of the steps on top fall apart. And refuge is the most fundamental foundation for the whole path. So, first thing to, uh, that I'd like us to uh, examine is, uh, does our life have meaning? So we look within ourselves and does my life have some sort of meaning? Where is it going? What am I doing with my life? And if uh, we can't really uh, identify some meaning or purpose to my life, then to consider, would it help to find some meaning in life, in my life? This is the most fundamental question that refuge addresses. So please take some minutes to think about this. Examine yourself, introspection. Does my life have some meaning? What am I doing with my life? And is it fulfilling me?
Okay, so slowly come back. Examining ourselves in terms of what is the meaning of my life is a very sobering thing, as perhaps you uh, just experienced. Uh, not a very comfortable question, and not something that uh, we ordinarily examine in ourselves. But uh, once we start to look deeper, we well, find that uh, really this is a, a very important question. Very often we discover that uh, we have a, a basic dissatisfaction with the way our lives are going. It doesn't seem to have any real meaning, no clear direction. And of course, when we feel like that, that our life is not really going anywhere significant, then uh, we lose a sense of self-worth and we fall to an attitude of whatever, doesn't really matter. And then we go along with whatever direction the media or advertising provides us and which the masses follow and we sort of go along with that. Make a lot of money, get a high position, find a wonderful uh, partner to live with, but somehow that really doesn't fulfill us. There must be something more to life than just that. We're not really happy. And there are plenty of very rich people who are absolutely miserable, despite all the money they have. So, Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, always says that the aim of life is to gain happiness. And so we need to define what would bring us long-term happiness. And we have to differentiate happiness from pleasure or fun, just seeking pleasure all the time and fun all the time and you know, finding the next good movie to go to or the next song to listen to, does no. that really satisfy? So happiness doesn't really mean pleasure or fun or entertainment, does it? Happiness is a state of mind with which we experience everything. We can go to some entertainment and be happy or we can go and be absolutely miserable. So. No. It's not dependent on the entertainment, is it? And other people can be doing something which they find fun and we find completely stupid. So we're looking, when we're looking for happiness, we're looking for something which is much more <coughs> basic, much more stable, that we hopefully would have all the time as an underlying feeling. And on the most basic level, that comes from, that happiness comes from a feeling of connectedness. Connectedness with others. After all, we are all social animals. And when we feel this deep connection with others, then it gives us a feeling of self-worth and meaning. So, please think about this. And uh, try to distinguish happiness from just pleasure and fun. What you try to differentiate here is what feeling do you have when you just go to 
some party or watch a nice movie or listen to a nice song, compare that to the feeling that you have when you feel a close connection with somebody else, with others. Which one is more satisfying? Which feeling lasts longer? Which feeling gives you more strength to be able to deal with your life? Okay. There's quite a difference, isn't there? between going to a nice movie or listening to our favorite song and feeling connected with uh, a loved one, isn't yes. there? So what's the opposite of uh, feeling this connectedness with others? The opposite of that is being self-preoccupied. We're thinking only of ourselves. And what happens then? We become very, very narrow-minded. We basically cut ourselves off from others. And cutting ourselves off from others and thinking only of, of ourselves, what's the result? We feel alone. We feel lonely. I guess that's the same word in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we feel isolated. And that's a very unhappy state of mind, isn't it? The more we think about ourselves, the more trapped we become, really, in our own worries. But when our hearts are open to others, we're happier. But uh, the aim, of course, is not to gain happiness just for ourselves, but uh, by bringing happiness to others, uh, brings some joy to our own hearts, doesn't it? Like a byproduct. It's like when you have a, a small child and you give your child something that uh, the child really enjoys, the mother or father feels joyful as well, don't you? Or you do something nice for somebody else, it also makes you feel good. So this comes from a sense of caring for others, a sense of happiness. Caring for others, doing nice things, making a nice meal for somebody, just uh, even offering a smile to someone makes you feel good. And when we're able to give a little bit of happiness to somebody else, even if it's just, you know, a few coins to uh, some beggar on the street, it gives us a feeling of self-worth that we can make a difference to somebody even if it's only a little, very small difference. But uh, by these small acts of kindness, this gives us, what should we say? And concern for others. It gives us friendship, a sense of connectedness. And from gaining that feeling of connectedness and self-worth that we can do something even very small to help somebody, bring them a little bit of happiness, this gives us emotional support makes us feel better about ourselves.
So it builds a very fundamental level of happiness, not dramatic happiness, but something very stable. I think emotional support is a very good way of describing it. So this is something to think about, please. Does it make sense from your own experience and from a logical point of view as well? And if it does make sense, is this something that uh, we would want? And if it is something that we would want, then the way that we train ourselves is to focus on, this is something I would like to attain. That's what you do in meditation, is to reaffirm in our minds, you know, build some new pathway of thinking that uh, this is something worthwhile that could really be of benefit to gain this basic connectedness with others through concern for them and even just small acts of kindness. Small acts of kindness bring friendship. Friendship brings emotional support. Acting selfishly with others cuts, self, cuts ourselves off from them. They certainly don't want to be with us, and we're left completely alone. So, please think of that. And if this is something worthwhile, I have this feeling that this is something I'd like to attain. And if uh, we have it already to a certain extent, this is something that I would like to develop more. Okay. I think it's very interesting to examine this whole Facebook phenomenon. Uh, I don't know how many of you are on Facebook, but I'm sure you know lots of people who are on Facebook. And one of the biggest uh, phenomena that occur with it is uh, posting things and waiting to see how many likes we get. What's behind that? Why do you want these likes? The hope, I think, is that we will be connected with others. And that's the whole idea of social media, isn't it? But posting a picture of a cat or something like that on Facebook and wanting to get likes, who are we actually thinking is going to be benefited by this like? Is it me or is it them? Why do we feel anxious about it? That uh, we're really concerned how many likes we get. And if we don't get too many, we're really disappointed, aren't we? We're unhappy. And there's that anxiety of uh, every few minutes, compulsively, we have to check on our phone again, where there are more likes. And it doesn't really connect us with the other people. We, the main concern is how many people like me because of this uh, you know, picture of my cat. And are we really concerned about doing something that would make them happy? It's an interesting thought to analyze you know, why we're putting up these posts and what is our aim. And what I think it reveals is that underlying this, there is that drive to want to be connected with others. That's why we're on social media. But somehow it's not working to connect us really with others in a satisfying way because really my main concern is how many people like me. So our being self-centered, thinking about me, 
is jeopardizing this opportunity to really connect with others, isn't it? Think about that for a moment. If you know you have this Facebook uh, experience or whatever social media you might be uh, using, what is your motive for using it, and how successful is it in fulfilling that motive of uh, being connected with uh, with others? And if it's not working. Why isn't it working? Why do I feel anxious about how many likes I get? Why am I always checking every five minutes? Okay. So if a feeling of connection with others, and a real connection, not just uh, something should we say? Unsatisfying. If that's what uh, really we uh, would like, as something that uh, would give us some emotional support and happiness, which we're all looking for, then the question is how to actually attain it. And uh, for that, we need to open our minds and hearts to thinking of others and actually caring for their happiness, for their welfare, not just for them to like us. And to do that, we need to work on ourselves. We need to work on ourselves to overcome our self-preoccupation and our self-cherishing. Here's the tricky part. We <laughs> need to not work with self-preoccupation to overcome our self-preoccupation. You know, you could be so closed into, you know, oh, I'm so bad and I have to work on myself and so on, that, uh, you know, because I'm so selfish, but uh, still, you're not opening up at all. You know, we need to work on this, uh, on ourselves, with this basic openness to others. This is what we're trying to do. And if we speak on the most, most basic level, this is the type of direction that... Uh, would be the most beneficial to put in our lives. This would give our lives some meaning. This working on ourselves to be more open to others, to overcome our self-imposed isolation because of our self-preoccupation. This would give some meaning to our lives and give us some emotional support and basic happiness. And that is what refuge is all about. It's putting a safe and positive direction in our life to basically bring us a happier, more meaningful life by being of more benefit to others and working on ourselves to try to do that. The way that the Buddhas and the great masters have accomplished and taught us how to do, they've shown the way based on understanding that uh, this is something that we can attain ourselves and that this is something that we are capable of doing, not impossible. Just requires a strong motivation, which gives energy to our uh, working on ourselves, and then actually following proper methods. Think about that. This is what refuge means. Going in a direction that will help us to avoid 
difficulties in life. That's why it has such a fundamental basis in uh, Buddhism, because rather than our lives going nowhere or going in a negative situation, negative direction, we're working to have it go in a positive direction. And that gives it meaning, gives it purpose. And the more we work in that direction, the more connected we feel with others. It gives us emotional support, emotional support from those that have gone on this path before and emotional support that we gain from being more connected with others. Without that, any more advanced practices that we do, something's missing. This gives strength, basis, stability to the entire Buddhist path. So think about that. Okay. You know, when we study refuge, we could, of course, uh, look at uh, you know, the 32 major signs of a Buddha's body and the 62 qualities of speech and the enormous list of the qualities of a Buddha's mind. And we can learn all the characteristics of the Dharma and all the qualities of the Sangha. And we could uh, recite forever. You know, I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha and do a million prostrations at the same time. And in the end, it doesn't make any difference. Or I should say, it doesn't make any significant difference in our lives. Yep. Has some effect, of course, of yep. discipline at least. But uh, without understanding the basic idea of what is refuge, you know, what is it really talking about? And what does it uh, add to my life? All the other stuff is, uh, what should we say? Hard to see what application it has. In but the end, it seems irrelevant. I'm going to smile. I mean, once we understand what it's all about, what the purpose of refuge is, how it functions, what benefit it has in my life, then you look with a completely different eyes at all these qualities. We start to see that, for instance, uh, these 32 major features of a Buddha and 80 minor features, you know, what is that all about? Are we really aiming to have earlobes that go all the way down to our shoulders? Is that really you know, going to give significance and meaning to my life? No, not really, does it? I mean, obviously, we could put a disc in our earlobe and stretch it to our, to our shoulders, but then what? So what? What we start to realize, which is an amazing thing, is that uh, the image of a Buddha is actually an infographic. You know what an infographic is? It's some sort of picture from which all the different pieces in it give you information. Because when we study these various marks of a Buddha, the physical marks of a Buddha, each of them has a cause. They're even called that, indicative features that indicate their cause, literal translation. So rather than focusing on how long the Buddha's ears are, we focus on, by seeing that, it gives us the, a representation of what are the cause for this? What did the Buddha have to do in order to become a Buddha. And this long earlobe is just a, an infographic representation of that. 
it's like uh, these tantric deities are infographics as well. You know, the six arms stand for the six paramitas. You know, the four arms of Chenrezig are the four immeasurable attitudes. All of them are infographic representations. So like that, we focus on it as a way to keep in mind all the things that it represents. So with the Buddha, for example, the main thing to focus on are what are the causes for becoming like that. And these 32 and 80 features give a huge, incredible list of the acts that a Buddha does, that somebody does, in order to feel this, what we've been talking about, this connectedness with others, overcome self-cherishing, to bring happiness to others. It's an incredible list of all the ways of doing that, which then results in becoming a Buddha. That shows the direction we want to go in. Then you start to appreciate how incredibly sophisticated Buddhism it is, you know, to come up with infographics two and a half thousand years ago. So all these details about refuge that you can learn, you can study, you can you know, memorize all these lists and so on, they only really take on meaning if you understand what is refuge all about? What is its purpose? How does it function? How does it make a difference in my life? So take a moment to digest that, and then uh, we can have some questions. And then tomorrow we'll start looking at what are the things that are preventing us from going in this direction, and what do we have to work on? Because when we understand what's preventing us from putting this direction in our life, then we gain the motivation that I want to overcome this and attain what that direction will give me. In other words, we have to have this uh, two-directional motivation. This is preventing me from feeling this connectedness and gaining happiness in life. And this is what I want to attain. I want to avoid this. I want to attain that. Then the list of, you know, what are the emotions that we need to feel that to, in order to put that direction in our life? Fear, confidence, and compassion. Well, has to have some meaning. And not just, you know, I'm afraid of going to hell, so, you know, Buddha saved me. It's very sophisticated and incredibly practical. Whether we believe in other lives, whether we believe in future reincarnation, doesn't matter. Very helpful. So whatever we're studying in Buddhism, look deeper. How can it actually apply to daily life, to my daily life? And when you discover that meaning, that relevance, then you can put your heart in it. Otherwise, it's a hobby. It's, it's just, you know, fun for diversion, you know, entertainment. You know, how interesting, but then nothing more. And maybe how boring, and then you give it up. So digest all of that for a moment, and then uh, we can have a couple questions. But that's some preview of uh, where we're going this weekend. I'm not going to give you lists. You can read lists on my website and other, other places. Okay, you have a few questions? You're explaining uh, refuge from the point of view of the person of highest uh, 
capabilities, capacity. Mm -hmm. And in the first volume of Plumrim, it, it, it is explained as a, for the lowest level of person and the middle level as a fear in the first place, fear of better birth, and then mm -hmm. the second place is the fear of uh, samsara. So does it mean that these two uh, are li li less important than and less meaningful than the last one? No, they all are meaningful. All the levels of motivation. We'll get into what fear actually means on the weekend, but uh, all of them are uh, necessary. And uh, compassion underlies the entire Buddhist path. All the levels of motivation, compassion and the wish to, wish to be happy. Without going into great detail, on the initial level, we want to avoid destructive behavior because that is going to lead to worse rebirths, which means refrain from harming others. So we are concerned about others. On the uh, um, intermediate scope, we want to uh, overcome uncontrollably recurring rebirth, so samsara. What's preventing that are our disturbing emotions, anger, you know, attachment, and so on. So in order to uh, avoid hurting others through our anger or attachment, we work to overcome that. We have anger toward others. We have a longing desire for others. So if we look at the Theravada path, which is basically this intermediate scope, there's a huge emphasis on the four immeasurables, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. It's there to overcome our disturbing emotions. And the advanced scope is obviously love and compassion for others to be able to directly benefit them. So first two levels to avoid hurting them by our actions or by our anger. The third level to actually help them. So compassion is there throughout the entire path. I think that's very important to emphasize. You had a question? Uh, when you're speaking about establishing this connection with other others, you, you told us that on this, uh, when we are going through this way, we have we experiencing uh, such a feelings like fear and compassion, as I understand. And when we're going through what the Lamrim? No, we, when we're going through to establishing this uh, connection with others, and the question is: Is it possible? to feel simultaneously compassion and fear? Uh, well, yes. I mean, can we feel... I mean, this we will get into on the weekend. This is what I want to uh, discuss further. But uh, we have three... I mean, three basic causes for putting this direction in our life. We want to avoid... So that's fear, but in a positive sense. We want to avoid hurting others and causing ourselves more unhappiness because of hurting others or getting angry with them or ignoring them. So compassion is the wish for them to be free of suffering. So I want them to be free of suffering and I don't want to hurt them. That's what I'm afraid of. Of course, that goes together very nicely. So I'm very careful because I don't want to hurt you because I want you not to, not to suffer and then confidence that there's a way to avoid causing you a problem. So the three go together, the three motivations, fear, confidence, and compassion. You see, 
if we actually take refuge in the Dharma, the confidence that we have is that the Buddhist teachings make sense, but it's a presumption. We presume that it makes sense. If you start with, you know, well, you know, part of the teachings are nonsense, it can't, doesn't, doesn't make any sense, you're never going to figure it out. So you presume that it does make sense, and then you try to figure it out. That's an important consequence of actually taking refuge in the Dharma. The question is, for example, for example, no. in this life we take refuge, and this refuge is the kind of uh, something in, in our in our mind stream. And uh, in, if, if you die, and in the next life, uh, will we remember about this refuge uh, that we or have feeling of this refuge, or this is the it, it's kind of impulse which. Uh, which we have and which we can develop in the next life, but don't remember it, about it at all. Well, most of us don't remember what we did yesterday, let alone remember what happened, uh, you know, in previous lives. But uh, what we're talking about is basically what in uh, medical science we talk about neuroplasticity, fancy word. The brain, you know, has certain neural pathways based on certain habits, and something happens, like uh, you get paralyzed on the right side, and your brain can be, in a sense, rewired so that uh, you can use your left hand to do what you used to do with your right hand. So the brain, the brain is plastic in that way, it can be changed. The pathways can be changed. So the same thing with the mind, our mental activity. Neuroplasticity is referring on a physical level with the brain, but we can also speak on an experiential level with the mind. Likewise, we can build up new habits. So it's a matter of training. And we speak of this in Buddhism in terms of building up tendencies, potential, habits. So in future lives, depending on the strength of that tendency and all the other tendencies and karmic potentials that we have, that tendency will still be, technically, you will speak of it imputable on the mental continuum, but the circumstances have to be there in order for that tendency to give rise to some manifest, uh, you know, conscious thing going on. So you might have a tendency to like to um, eat ice cream but uh, if you're not hungry or it's not available, it doesn't, it doesn't arise. It arises when you're hungry. So if we're reborn as a cockroach or a chicken, maybe uh, that uh, tendency to <laughs> go in this positive direction, the circumstances aren't there for it to arise, but that tendency is there. So the circumstance has to be there, like a precious human rebirth again, that uh, it will manifest. Depends how strongly, just as uh, if you only try writing with your other hand a few times, that tendency to be able to write with your other hand isn't very strong. You have to really train a lot. Same thing with our way of thinking. And we build up this beneficial habit, not only by sitting in our meditation room and meditating. Very important to realize that you also build it up by actually applying it in life. Not just passively, you know, as a rehearsal in your meditation. Apply it. 
Anything else? Thus, the feeling of happiness always is result of helping others and the subproduct of uh, helping other others or can, maybe attain happiness by when we help others with motivation of attain our own happiness or should it be always uh, the motivation of for helping others well happiness of course has many strengths so doing something for others so that uh, they'll like us gives us a little bit of happiness but uh, it uh, is not a lasting type of happiness because we never feel secure you know well maybe they don't really like us and uh, there are many many sources of uh, you know there are many different types of happiness you know there's a type of uh, happy uh, exhilarated state of mind that you get from shamatha for example well it's not necessarily helping somebody else unless you want to actually apply it in helping others so there are many different types of happiness but uh, what I was you know what I was talking about and what the Dalai Lama talks about He's talking about a very basic fundamental level that is there for, that can be there for anybody. Whether you practice meditation, whether you follow Buddhism, you know, everybody. It's in his realm of secular ethics. You know, something to investigate when you do something to uh, help the other person. You know, there are many examples of this. You know, you try to, uh, you know, somebody who is over-helpful. The other person doesn't really want our advice. They don't need our advice. But we give it anyway. Because we want to be helpful. And they say, leave me alone. You know, I didn't ask you. You know, that's especially when you have a married daughter and you tell her how to uh, keep her house and how to raise her children. So, where is the source of happiness? Your motivation makes you happy, but when you actually implement it, what are you, you know, it's being mixed with wanting to feel needed, you know, I want to feel still helpful, looking for what you want. But initially, you're feeling happy that you want to do something. So the level of happiness is, is there, but it's very small. And it uh, uh, is not, doesn't give you emotional support. I must say that this is one of the big dangers of trying to follow a bodhisattva path. That uh, you always want to be helpful, including situations and with people who don't want your help. So we need discriminating awareness, wisdom, when to offer our help and when to just have that motivation that we would like to help, but we know that we need to not say anything. That's extremely difficult. And we offer our unwanted help because of the self-cherishing. I, me, me, me want to be helpful. Well, let's end up that note. I'm guilty of that one myself, so that's why I laugh. Let's end with the dedication. We think whatever positive force, whatever understanding has come from this, may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to overcome their self-cherishing. Says that in the seven-point mind training, place all the blame on on one thing: your self-cherishing attitude. So may everybody be able to come overcome their self-cherishing, open up to others, and through that, find a safe direction in life and eventually attain enlightenment for the benefit of all.
Okay, thank you.